We remember these firefighters and try and learn and improve the surface as a whole so they did not die in vain. We will never look to blame anybody for the unfortunate circumstances surrounding the incident and it's important to remember that protocol may be different now as a result of this case and not to judge everyone for carrying out actions that could have been gold standard at the time of the event. Every firefighter chooses to risk their lives every time they turn into the station. They are all trying their best to save lives and protect themselves and each other. We will just map out what happened in the hope that we may keep it in mind next time we're on our job. This is FireLab Case Files. This week we remember Firefighter James Shears and Firefighter Alan Bannon. Series 1, Episode 1, Shirley Towers. As a young boy, Alan Bannon was the outdoorsy type, joining the Cub Scouts and remaining with them to become the adventure scout leader. He loved caving, climbing and mountaineering. He led trips away with the scouts for young people with severe learning difficulties, and as he grew up his charitable nature never ceased. It was as a leader of the Scout Caving Club in Hampshire that he met his long-term partner Charlotte. Known for helping everyone achieve the impossible, he was a popular team player with a dry sense of humour. After leaving school, he became a sheet metal worker with the British Rail under an apprenticeship scheme. He proved to be a practical and meticulous man, which meant he'd often be the one the family and friends would call up to help them with DIY. He was always willing to help out. His attitude led him to volunteer for the Hampshire Technical Rescue Team. He also took up scuba diving, achieving the qualification of Dive Master. In 2001, after working at Hampshire Fire and Rescue Surface workshops for four years, and after two attempts, Alan finally got his wish and was successful in his application to become a firefighter. In 2002, he and Charlotte welcomed their first baby into the world, his daughter Abby. They would all enjoy many camping holidays and days out at the local water park. The eldest of four brothers, James Shears, known as Jim to his friends, was also a family man. Having met his wife while studying a Bachelor's of Science degree in Biochemistry at Reading University in 1995, they would go on to have two boys, Frankie and Reuben. He doted on his brother's children as well as his own. He never looked on it as a duty or chore, he just simply loved being and playing with them. He would go along as a parent or helper on school trips and go into school to give fire safety talks. Jim was a perfectionist, which led his wife to call him Half-Job Jimmy, as he would take so long to complete DIY tasks around the house to his high standards. After leaving university, Jim initially worked as a biochemist, but he hated being confined in a lab. He applied to join Dorset Fire and Rescue Surface twice and got through to the final stages both times, but his nerves got the better of him in the final interview. Then in 2003, he tried Hampshire Fire and Rescue Surface and prepared for the interview process for hours. This time he was 100% prepared and confident and did not get nervous. His persistence and determination paid off and out of 3,000 interviewees, Jim was selected and he had finally succeeded in his dream of becoming a firefighter. Jim also loved judo. Starting at the age of 6, he would go on to reach Black Belt Second Dan and become gold medalist in the World Firefighter Games twice university champion, and achieved gold, silver and bronze medals at the national championships, which led him to representing Great Britain in Spain. When Frankie turned five, Jim brought him his first judo suit and could not have been prouder to take him along. 
He was instrumental in encouraging lots of Frankie's friends to join, and his ultimate dream would have been one day to set up his own judo club. Shirley Towers is a 16-storey concrete tower block built in 1967 in Southampton, one of England's port cities on the south coast. The tower block consists of 150 apartments and is home to around 400 people. Its design is unusual as each apartment is spread over five floors, top and bottom levels being entrances and the middle three consisting of a living room, toilet and bedroom. It briefly hit the headlines in 2001, when two men were attending a party on the top floor of the tower had fallen out, which turned into a scuffle in the corridor, during which they made contact with a lift door which sprung open, leaving both men to fall to their deaths down the lift shaft. It was to hit the headlines again on Tuesday, April 6, 2010, when the family of Flat 72 on the ninth floor were going about their normal routines. As the father vacuum cleaned the apartment, he picked up the bottom of the floor length curtains and hung them over a lamp out of the way. After a while, his wife smelled burning, but they assumed it was outside. Realising the lamp had set fire to the curtains, they lifted them away from the lamp and attempted to put them out using a soft drink. A neighbour called 999 at 8.09 in the evening. Fire rescue, what's the address of the incident? Hi, it's Shirley Towers, got a fire on the ninth Sorry, floor. Sorry, Shirley Towers? Shirley Towers. Okay, on the ninth floor, what flat number please? 72. Okay, flat 72, and what's on fire? The predetermined attendance, or PDA, is a set amount of resources that will be sent to the scene from control when a call comes in. This can be added to or reduced once an officer has eyes on the incident. For a fire at Shirley Towers, the PDA was five pumps, which is firefighter talk for a fire engine, one special equipment unit, one area appliance, and two flexi-duty officers. These officers are usually station manager or above. Six months earlier, the PDA for this address had been increased to the aforementioned PDA by two pumps. The closest fire station was Redbridge, just under one mile away. Their first appliance arrived at the scene within four minutes of the call. Upon doing so, the OIC, or officer in charge, decided to increase the number of pumps from five to six. Crews from St Mary's and Totten fire stations followed quickly behind the Redbridge crews, as all personnel were on station at the time the call came in. A bridgehead was set up two floors below, on the seventh floor. This is standard protocol, and it is deemed a safe place for officers to work from and to deploy and debrief firefighters. Red 1 were the first BA team to be sent in to Flat 72. Red 1 consisted of two firefighters and they had on them a thermal imaging camera or TIC, a radio and one 45mm hose which was connected to the high riser on the 7th floor. This was because the high risers were only situated on every second floor at Shirley Towers. On the outside of the building, teams had located a hydrant on Church Street adjacent to the front entrance of Shirley Towers. This was used to supply water to the dry riser using two separate 70mm hoses. A dry riser are smooth empty pipes that go up a high rise and save firefighters from rolling out the hose from the ground floor to the incident. They are extremely common in high rise and long buildings. 
A firefighter will supply the dry rise with water, which can be accessed from inside the building on a given floor, essentially giving you a hydrant on that floor of the building. Red One began a right-hand search. This means they would stick to the wall on the right at all times. Conditions were incredibly smoky, which gave them poor visibility, although it wasn't too hot. A safety jet was rolled out from the high-rise on the fifth floor, However, it would have been too short to have been used throughout the flat. A second BA team was then sent in. This was Red 2, consisting of Firefighter Bannon and Firefighter Shears. Their brief was to manage the hose for Red 1, making sure it didn't get stuck on any furniture or corners, etc., allowing Red 1 to move quickly and easily through the apartment. Red 2 had a radio and tick, but no firefighting media of their own. As Red One entered the apartment, they had to climb stairs to reach the first room. This was a living room where the fire was. They did not locate the fire on this floor as the conditions were too smoky, so they continued along the right wall to the next set of stairs which took them to the bathroom. Unbeknownst to them, they were now above the fire. Not finding the fire in the bathroom, they continued up the next flight of stairs to the bedrooms. Red Two was following behind them managing the hose. Whilst in the bedrooms, in an attempt to improve visibility, Red One decided to open the windows to allow some of the smoke to clear. After doing this, they met Red Two coming into the bedrooms and they shared information they had. It was around this time the heat level suddenly rose sharply, becoming unbearable for both teams and they both decided to leave the flat immediately. Deciding it was too hot to go back down, Red 1 decided they would go up another set of stairs to escape from the fire exit, which led to corridor on floor 11. One member of Red 1 made it out successfully, but noticing that he was alone, he turned around to search for his colleague, who he found was on the stairs leading to the fire escape. He had become entangled in wires which were hanging from the walls as the heat had mounted their housing. Helping him free himself from the entanglement, both firefighters then exited the building onto the 11th floor corridor. They both suffered burns to their hands and were taken to hospital. Red 2, however, had not been heard from since they had talked to Red 1 in the bedrooms. A BA emergency was declared. A BA emergency is when a BA wearer is or is suspected of being in trouble. Lack of communication or their ADSU, Automatic Distress Signal Unit, being activated are a few of the possible signs that would initiate a BA emergency procedure. This will set in motion many things, including the nearest fire appliance, fire officers and an ambulance being mobilised to attend the scene. As well as this, the duty or area manager will be informed. Numerous BA emergency teams were unable to locate Red 2. Their efforts made extremely difficult due to excessive heat and the fallen loose cables. Eventually, however, both firefighters were found using the tick. Firefighter Bannon was led in the doorway of the second bedroom, whilst firefighter Shears was laying in the doorway of bedroom one. Both firefighters were carried down and out to the level 9 exit where emergency medical treatment was provided in the corridor and lift lobby. Their injuries were fatal and they both died of excessive heat. Following this, all crews from St Mary's Station returned back to home station where they would receive ongoing welfare support. They were replaced by other crews in the area.
As in most tragic incidents of this nature, there are multiple learning points. Firstly, on setting up the hoses. Fed 1 entered with a 45mm hose coming off the high riser on floor 7, where the bridgehead was situated. This hose would have reached every part of the building. However, the safety jet would have failed to do so, only reaching the living room. The safety jet consisted of a 45mm hose coming off the 5th floor high riser and then into a dividing breach on the 7th floor, from which two 45mm hoses would later be supplied during the BA emergency stage. This would have meant that both the 45mm hoses would have been inadequate, as to get the correct water flow and pressure, the initial hose leading into the divided breach would have needed to be a 70mm hose. A 70mm hose would have given enough water to supply both 45mm hoses coming off the divided breach. At its peak, this incident had five 45mm hoses in use. Hose 1 and 2 coming from the 7th floor dry riser, using a dividing breach on the dry riser itself. Hoses 3 and 4 supplied the dry riser on the 5th floor, but coming from the dividing breach on the 7th. And the 5th hose came from the 9th floor dry riser, which was not used sooner as the crews found it incredibly difficult to gain access to. Eventually, entry to the high-riser cabinet on the ninth floor was forced to enable use. To summarise, of the five hoses used, Red 1 was safe, Red 2 had nothing, and later emergency teams using hoses 3 and 4 would have found them 1 too short and 2 lacking adequate pressure and water supply. It's perhaps important to remember these hoses, however, would have had water and were able to reach the scene of the original fire in the living room. Also, all procedures were followed correctly and the Draeger BA sets and all teams worked well. A mistake was made when Red 1 didn't see the fire in the living room. Better use of the tick would have prevented this miss and allowed them to fight the fire without continuing through the apartment. Neither Red 1 nor 2 used their ticks whilst inside flat 72, despite both taking them in. All radios were found to have worked well between the bridgehead and the pump, as well as the bridgehead and the BA teams. However, Red 1 were unable to operate their push-button radios after they burned their hands. Red 1 turned upstairs toward the bathroom, passing the fire door that the homeowners had propped open. Had this been closed, it would have contained the fire to the living room and made it more clear where the fire was. It could have also provided the firefighters with a safer escape route should they have chosen to use it later on. The fire door being wedged open rendered it useless and meant that when ventilation was carried out later by Red 1, by opening the windows in the bedrooms, the stairs became, in effect, a chimney. The hot air gases and smoke were carried up through the stairway and out these windows, as well as fresh air being poured into the fire fueling it. This, it could be argued, led to the extreme rise in temperature. So why do firefighters use tactical ventilation? The National General Risk Assessment 3.2 version 2 September 2008 and the Fire Service Manual Volume 2 Fire Service Operations compartment fires and tactical ventilation contains guidance on ventilation. The manual defines ventilation as 
the removal of heated air, smoke and other airborne contaminants from a structure and their replacement with a supply of fresher air. The purpose of ventilation during a fire is to release the products of combustion from the compartment as so to prevent them from causing further fire growth. Useful side effects of this are that if the air flows are properly managed, air temperatures will be reduced and visibility will be increased, making a firefighter's job easier. However, firefighters should be aware that the increased air supply may cause the fire to intensify. Measures are put into place to try and prevent any negative effects of ventilation. Some of these include that if you want to ventilate, you must get permission from the OIC first, and the OIC will then formulate a plan, which would usually involve removing personnel from the route the fumes may take, firstly for their safety, and secondly to allow ventilation to work efficiently. In the majority of instances, ventilation should be used after the fire is located and preferably is under control. After 2005 fire in Harrow Court, Hertfordshire, building standards were changed for fire alarm cables. It states that fire alarm cables and cable supports should be non-combustible. The support should last as long as the cables are expected to last, as failure in this could lead to early failure in the fire and detection systems if they are put under strain by falling cables. It was also noted that cables only supported by plastic trunking could cause a serious hazard to firefighters as they may become entangled in the cables. The actions were taken but only for fire alarms and detection devices. On Monday the 18th of June 2012, Royal Majesty's Coroner for Southampton City in the New Forest District, Mr K Wiseman, convened an inquest into the circumstances attaining to the deaths of Alan Bannon and James Shears. On the 10th of July, he ruled death by misadventure. Death by misadventure in UK law means death caused by a person accidentally while performing a legal act without negligence nor intent to harm. It is primarily attributed to an accident that occurred due to a risk that was taken voluntarily. Nothing can bring Alan and Jim back, but in giving evidence they have allowed us to begin to understand what happened that night and what we can all do to ensure that it does not happen again. We certainly don't want any other family to go through what we've gone through. Do you think Jim and Alan were let down by the fire service? I don't know so much as let down, but mistakes were made, and they will hopefully be rectified. Firefighters Alan Bannon and James Shears died from a sudden exposure to initially intense heat from 8.38 to 8.41, and thereafter to excessive heat whilst dealing with the fire in a flat on the ninth floor of a high-rise block in Shirley Towers. Obvious precautions to prevent the fire from occurring were not taken. In addition, operational conditions for all firefighters involved became extremely difficult and dangerous and this significantly contributed to the deaths of the firefighters. Numerous factors have been identified as being relevant in the chain of causation which could have affected the eventual outcome and where appropriate will form the basis of recommendations to improve safety in the future.
During this investigation, other evidence came to light. It was stated there was a failure to gather vital information from the 999 call. The IC initially ordered the bridgehead to be set up on the 5th floor, assuming that flat 72 was on the 7th floor. However, due to another misunderstanding, the bridgehead was actually set up on the correct floor, which was floor 7, two floors below flat 72 on floor 9. Even though this ended up being the correct decision, it led to much confusion as to what floor the firefighters were actually on. Control also failed to confirm that the fire was in the living room and that all persons had left the flat. The investigation also highlighted the failure to use ticks and identify the fire as well as unauthorised use of ventilation, which allowed heated air to flow up past the second crew and exhaust out of the open windows in the bedroom. Although a BA emergency was called, the call was delayed. Red 1 had arrived back at BA control in a distressed state at 8.46. A BA emergency would not be called until 9.08, more than 20 minutes after the last communication with Red 2. A BA emergency wasn't initiated following Red 1's debrief. Communications would not be re-established with Red 2 and subsequent teams indicated a developing fire. Red 2's time of whistle was 1 minute past 9. Red 5 reported here in ADSU at 8 minutes past 9, following which a BA emergency was called. Firefighter Shears' cylinder would have ran empty of air 3 minutes after the BA emergency was called at 11 minutes past 9. The first BA emergency team also entered without any means of providing Red 2 with additional air should they be found. This is despite the fact they were both several minutes past their time of whistle. Surface mounted electrical cabling was encased in plastic trunking which failed when exposed to heat and thus released the cables. These cables then became a hazard to firefighter. Firefighter Bannon and Firefighter Shears were both entangled in cables when located. The Harrow Court Fire Rule 43 letter only made recommendations regarding fire-resistant cable supports for the fire alarm cabling. Finally, in July 2015, the British standard on electrical wiring regulations were changed. The requirement will compel all new wiring systems to use metal rather than plastic to support the cables in escape routes to prevent their premature collapse in the event of a fire. BA crews encountering falling cables had no means of self-extrication, e.g. insulated cutters. Cables fell between the cylinder and the BA set backplate, making it extremely difficult to remove without assistance. Off the back of this tragic incident, many improvements were made to aid firefighter safety. As well as a change in laws for cables, others include that all BA sets are now issued with insulated wire cutters and crews are trained on how to use them safely and efficiently. Extra training would also be introduced focusing on the use of ticks, dealing with excessive temperatures, making sure the correct PPE was worn at all times on the fire ground, what search patterns best suit the job, SSRIs, dealing with fallen cables, safe entry procedures, ventilation, entry control and chain of command. Due to confusion of the bridgehead level, firefighters were only told to go as far as floor 5, 
which led to future BA wearers carrying their kit up two flights of stairs to floor 7 and then another two flights of stairs under air to get to floor 9 where flat 72 was located. There is also confusion as to which lift or elevator was the fire lift. Designed to be safe for firefighters to use, there should be a designated fire lift operator who must stay with the lift at all times to ensure the correct lift is used. Magnetic signs have since been introduced that should be placed on lifts in a high rise to discern which lift is in fact the fire lift. All flats and their lowest floor, as well as if they go up or down from their main entrance, is kept with control and can be passed on en route or once at a scene. Red 1 went to set up their hose initially from the dry riser on floor 9. But being unable to do so, they used three lengths of 45mm hose on floor 7. Red 2, however, set their hose up also consisting of three lengths of 45mm hosing on floor 5. Upon finding their hose was not long enough to continue through the flat, they left the jet outside the flat and followed their brief to hose manage for Red 1. It was commented that although hoses should be kept as short as possible to increase pressure and it is difficult to know how long a hose needs to be before the scene of the fire is located, it is vital that a jet is able to reach every part of the premises in question. Additional training was also introduced on how to fight a fire. Firefighters usually use a pulse spray technique which involves applying pulses of water onto the smoke in a tactical way to keep the fire under control. This also prevents steam burns and helps the fire spreading in what is called a flashover by cooling down the hot gases. However, in this instance, considering there were teams searching for Red 2 and Red 2 themselves were above the fire, it was noted that the pulse spray attack was not the best as heat would have continued and intensified as long as there was enough supply of oxygen and fuel in the flat. During operations, crews were instructed to locate and force open the fire escape of flat 72. Several doors were forced open before the correct door was found. During this incident, the other residents were told to stay in their flats for their own safety as part of the stay put policy. Breaking the wrong doors would have compromised the flat owner's safety as well as the fire resisting construction provided by the doors. Some of these flats later had smoke inside them. The fire alarm of flat 72 was not silenced for several hours. Had it been silenced earlier, the ADSU may have been heard and the radio messages would have been more easily understood. It was also mentioned that BA crews fighting fires should be replaced regularly. One team continued fighting the fire after their time of whistle went, as they were not replaced and did not want to leave the fire unattended for fear of it spreading. Finally, all BA sets are now fitted with an anti-entanglement strap over the cylinders which greatly prevents the chance of having cables becoming trapped in the set as happened in this case. This strap was the brainchild of acting crew manager Broomfield from the Fairham Fire Station who are part of the Hampshire Fire and Rescue Service and has since been adopted by firefighters all around the world as well as hundreds of Royal Navy vessels. Acting crew manager Broomfield explained that he had mentioned it the next day and they had sent people down to work out how best to get it out there and put him in touch with people who would make it happen. It's extremely gratifying to think that something I've created off the cuff, based on my wife's hair clip, will be making lives safer in other services. I feel fortunate that Hampshire Fire and Rescue Service listened to my idea.
I'll leave some of the final words of Alan Bannon's sister, Lynn Trott. It was early evening and Kirsty Hoffman was cooking tea in the kitchen for her partner who was in the lounge with their baby son. Kirsty smelt burning. She assumed it was coming from outside of the flat. By the time that she and Carl realised the burning smell was coming from the curtains that Carl had earlier placed in the uplight while hoovering, they were fairly well aligned. Carl tried to extinguish the flames with a bottle of Dr Pepper. At about this point, sprinklers would have kicked in. The area around the window would have been wet, their baby son would have been safe, and the fire would have been out. They would have needed a new sofa, some new curtains, a new lamp. The lounge probably would have needed redecorating. But that's not what happened. Instead, the fire took the lives of two firefighters and had a traumatising effect on not only the life of my family, but of all firefighters that attended that shout, and also many other people. There are many heartbreaking things about that night, but one of the hardest to come to terms with is the similarity between the fire at Shirley Towers and the fire at Harrow Court in Stevenage. That fire happened nine years ago, and as in Shirley Towers, two firefighters lost their lives, and along with that of a resident, the key recommendations for Harrow Court were fitting of sprinklers and improvement to surface-mounted cables. So in order for you to understand the human and very real impact of failing to take on board the recommendations laid out by the coroner in his Rule 43, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our story from that night. It was a day after Easter Monday. I had the day off work and I was trying to decide what to do with our kids. My brother Alan called me. Once again, he'd got dates confused in his diary, and he suddenly had a free morning. So we met up with kids, and we played at the park for hours. Alan took several photos on his phone. Our last moments together captured on film. Those are now lost forever, because his phone was with him during the fire. At 6.30 that evening, Alan Pocket dialed me. I could hear him talking in the background. It was the last time that I would hear his voice. He'd gone on shift at 6pm and at roughly 8.10 was called out to the fire. He and Jim Shears were the second BA team sent in. By 9.40, Alan was pulled out of the flat and despite extensive efforts, it was too late. The events of that night have been well documented and I've sat through the discussions of the timeline again and again. At one o'clock in the morning our phone rang and woke us and my heart raced. It can't be good news. Nobody calls you with good news in the middle of the night. And for me and Keith, my husband, it was the second time in under a week that we'd been woken in the middle of the night. The last time was a call from Keith's dad, who'd had a nasty fall, and both of us expected it to be news about him. Keith answered the phone and asked how his dad was. He said, it's not dad, it's Alan. I thought, what does he want at this time of the night? Keith replied, he's dead. 
And with those few words, my family was plunged into a nightmare of grief, publicity and questions, which four years on still have not disappeared. My children lost their favourite and closest uncle. My husband lost his best friend. My parents lost their only son. My five-year-old niece lost her daddy. And then somewhere in amongst all of that, I lost my brother. The whole day of the funeral was completely surreal. Alan's coffin was carried on a fire engine and the funeral cars followed. <coughs> we had police outriders on bikes, stopping traffic at junctions. It's like being in a film. As we came out the bottom of the road, the traffic on the other side stopped. All through the city, we as we passed people, they stopped their cars. Some got out and stood with their heads bowed. It was one of the saddest and most amazing things. As we reached the centre of Southampton, the general public and the emergency services staff, not just firefighters, but ambulance staff and police were lining the streets. That were upwards of 800 people at his service. The reason for telling you this is so that you can start to understand the real human and the very real impact of not covering, um, not considering the recommendations. There were a lot of recommendations that came out of the four-week inquest, but nothing that I can say today or that you will read can ever truly, truly un explain the impact. I sat through every minute of Alan and Jim's inquest, and I can talk you through the events of that night probably better than most. But one of the most important recommendations, the one thing that would have saved the lives of Alan and Jim, without question, is sprinklers. Sprinklers save lives. It's simple, it's irrefutable. Last year, over eight years after the incident in 2018, work began in Shirley Towers to fit all flats with sprinklers but efforts continue to get similar results in many high-rise tower blocks across the UK.